Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Friday, February 9th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm speaking today with environmental correspondent Sue Sirks and Arab affairs reporter Luca Pacchiani. Hi, good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning, Jessica. Morning. It is day 126 of the war. U.S. President Joe Biden, he said in the press conference that he's pushing very hard for a sustained pause in fighting that would hopefully free the remaining hostages. Meanwhile, an IDF plan to increase soldier and reservist conscription time in the military as it prepares for a long war in Gaza created a fierce backlash among lawmakers as many renewed calls to end the exemptions for the ultra-Orthodox community. We will look at that issue of Haredim serving in the IDF along with how the recent spate of rainfall, if it was enough to ensure a good harvest. We'll also talk about another form of reporting from Gaza and an Iranian artist with a new piece in Israel. All of that after a quick break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if... What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Okay, Sue, so sticking with this topic of Haredi conscription, which there was definitely a little bit of a push of that right after October 7th, you interviewed an expert in Haredi society who is himself ultra-Orthodox about this very tense current topic regarding the ultra-Orthodox serving in the IDF. Um, It's a topic that's essentially been fraught since 1948. So tell us what you spoke about and really how it gives us a little bit of insight into what's happening right now on this issue. I think that many people were confused by a report early on in the war that 2,000 Haredim had asked to volunteer for the army. I spoke to a number of people from the community, and as you uh, rightly point out, Dr. Eliezer Khayoun, uh, who's a researcher at the Jerusalem Institute for Policy Research. And I think the reality is very nuanced, but that we're definitely not seeing evidence of any massive change yet. Today, the Haredi make up 16% of the population. 18-year-olds in the community account for 15% of all Jewish Israelis of enlistment age, which is 18, but just a few thousand serve as conscripts in the combat units. Um with Dr. Hayun saying that most of these aren't true Haredim anyway. They might be lapsed Haredim or religious Zionists. Now, the ones that signed up to volunteer were older men, mostly married, who don't study full-time anyway and are already working. And most will have signed up for a very short 
three-week basic training after which they're posted to the home command and they go home every night. So it's not signing up to go into Gaza. Those who study full-time in a yeshiva or in a kollel, a kollel is for married men, are the ones that don't serve and that the mainstream rabbis will not let go of for military service. Under current regulations, they can defer enlistment until they're no longer of draft age, which is 26 at the moment. As Dr. Hayun explained, the rabbis genuinely believe that prayer and Torah study protect the people of Israel no less than military service. And of course, they want to keep Haredi society intact, and they worry that if men are exposed too much to the outside world, they might leave the community. After October the 7th, we did see many Haredim um, volunteering to help the, the soldiers in the home front. Um, and interestingly, the, the mainstream rabbi spoke out against that as well. And they called students back early from their winter break to pray harder. As you said, before Israel was, well, before Israel was established, this luxury of full-time study was available only to the brightest few because most Jews had to work. And if they were observant, they would study in the evenings. There was nobody to subsidize them. But in Israel, uh, David Ben-Gurion famous, famously ordered the exemption of the remnants of European Jewry. Then there were only about 400 men, but it became a, a precedent. And today it's the norm for Haredi men to study full-time. Um, they, uh, you know, they've, they've got people like you, me, and Luca working and paying taxes. Um, part of those taxes are paid to, um, paid to subsidize them. Just four days before October 7th, the leader of United Torah Judaism was threatening to bolt the coalition if the government didn't pass legislation for blanket exemption of Haredi men. Now, that actually isn't a law at the moment because every law that's been passed has been struck down by the High Court for not ensuring equality of uh, sharing the military burden. So you've got the, the married working Haredim, that's more than half of men today. And the rabbis tend to keep silent about that because these guys are working anyway and they probably set up a Haredi home and there's less, there's less of a chance of them being lured outside. Um, but there are changes in Haredi society. There were surveys before and after the war that do show a slight softening of attitudes, both towards the state and the army. And there are a few rabbis... Dr. Chayun says they're still in the minority who believe that Haredi man sh men should be allowed to serve. And remember that if they're exempt, they also, they also can't work. But the key thing is the conditions, and this is the crux. Um, Dr. Chayun says that there are not insignificant numbers of Haredi men that just don't fit the study mould, and they could theoretically go to the army. But the infrastructure doesn't exist yet to enable them to maintain a Torah way of life. You know, we know that in the secular and the religious Zionist community, there's a whole network of preparatory programs, mechinot, support through the service, that the Haredim just don't have. And there's no overall state body that combines the IDF and the rabbis to ensure that this thing is managed properly. So this would have to be a condition for any of the Haredim to be released. Um, now, if you look ahead by 2065 listen to this figure, 40% of the Jewish population and 30% of the general population will be Haredi. At that stage, it just won't be possible for so many to neither work nor serve. So change will come, says Dr. Chayun. The only question is how. Thanks for that, Sue. Uh, fascinating. Turning to a really different topic, but one that is part of your more general beat, rain and rainfall, which we had a ton of over the last two weeks, I think it was 15 days, I know that I picked strawberries this week and as a volunteer and the farmer, they were all waterlogged. 
uh, it was a really big problem for the farmer. He lost a big chunk of his strawberry crop. So I know that strawberries aren't necessarily what you were looking at specifically in your story this week, but what are we seeing in terms of the rainfall? Was it enough? It never seems like it is. Tell us what the farmers are saying. So it was, uh, as you say, two weeks of straight rainfall, and this was the first time in 30 years. And as we're always looking at the level of the Sea of Galilee, it went up by an extra 26 centimetres, which is about uh, 10 inches. But according to the experts, the only irregular thing here was the length. Um, Parts of the country, particularly in the north and the centre, equaled or received more than their annual allocation, which is, I don't know where you were picking your strawberries, but parts of the south did less well. Uh, and that's where we grow a lot of our grain. And I was actually looking at what are called rain-fed crops, which is wheat and barley and that kind of thing. Um, we, obviously, we don't know how much more rain is due this winter. Uh, it is going to rain on Valentine's Day next week, on Wednesday and Thursday. Um, but we do know that the climate's getting warmer, which means that in parts of the Negev in the south and the Jordan Valley around Betshan, it will get harder to grow traditionally rain-fed rain-fed crops like uh, wheat. And this will pose an increasing dilemma. Do you irrigate? So I spoke to one farmer in the Negev in the southern part um, where the half the grains are already being irrigated with recycled water and what have you, but they with 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 water that's left over after they've finished with, you know, watering the hummus and, and all the other and all the other crops. Or do you increase imports? Um, the Israeli government for many years has been very pro opening up the market to imports because it thinks that it's going to bring down the cost of living, although I certainly haven't seen any sign of that so far. At present, Israel produces only 10 to 15% of the wheat that it consumes and the rest is, import- is, is imported. I spoke to David Levy, who heads the Grain Association of Field Crop Growers, or And he said that there are many reasons, obviously, has an interest to preserve and boost local growers. And one is Israel's food security. Now, we've seen how Turkey, which is a key tomato supplier, has turned against us. Most of our wheat imports come from Russia. Is that a reliable partner? What if the ports are forced to close because of war? What if world wheat supply falls behind demand from a growing world population? On the other hand, we're a water-scarce country with our own very fast-growing population. Do we earmark more water for agriculture? Do we subsidise it? So lots of questions that are going to that are going to become, you know, come more to the fore in the coming years uh, as the climate warms. Okay, so I guess we'll see what happens with the rain this week. But yes, complicated, complicated issues. All right, thanks for that, Sue. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Luca will talk to us about uh, a different form of reportage from Gaza. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. 
Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, so Luca, we all know that uh, reporters embedded in Gaza are few and far between, and those that are there, it's complicated, the stories that they are telling and how they're telling it. You reported this week about uh, a particular project that is looking to tell the stories of regular Gazans, of regular Palestinians in Gaza, and how they are viewing and getting through this war. Tell us about the about this project. Right. Um you know, we've seen uh, countless times that Al Jazeera reporters, uh, they're interviewing someone, say, in a Gaza hospital, and this person starts railing against Hamas, and the, the reporter just cuts him off and takes the microphone away. Um, so these are like a few blips that show us how the population is, in, to a certain extent, turning against Hamas. And the media dispersed in Gaza is just not um, telling those stories. Um, you know, Al Jazeera is complicit with Hamas. There's a few other media outlets uh, but they are not allowed to report um, independently. So there's an initiative carried out by the um, an NGO based in the U.S., the Center for Peace Communications, that are um, conducting secret interviews with Gazans. Uh, it's a project that actually started a little over a year ago, and the Times of Israel um, uh, published uh, a number of those interviews. It was called Whispered in Gaza. And uh, this new iteration uh, of the project is called Voices from Gaza. And uh, so far, they carried out uh, 15 interviews uh, where Gazans uh, tell about their lives under the war, uh, how Hamas is uh, preventing them from evacuating in the early days of the war, how it's hoarding food, uh, how uh, during the ceasefire, uh, Hamas people came back from under the tunnels and started uh, uh, basically retaliating against anyone who was suspected with uh, uh, collaborating with Israel. And also they told about their fear for the future. Is there anything you can tell us about the logistics of how these interviews are conducted? Okay, so uh, the founder of the center who does the interviews, is, his name is Joseph Braude, uh, was uh, very eager not to give any details on how these uh, interviews are done uh, because they could really put uh, Gazans, uh, their interviews uh, in, in danger. Uh, what they did with Whispered in Gaza is that they, can, they, they filmed the interviews and then they animated them. Uh, so you can hear the original voice, but then the, what was shown in the video is actually an animation. Right, not the faces of the people. Mm-hmm. Not the faces, no, just like cartoons. So this time they haven't had the time to do the animation, so you really just hear the voices. And uh, you will see in the article there are links to the the, the short videos. They're about a minute and a half each. Um, yeah, basically, and you just, yeah, just hear the, the sound with the subtitles in English. Give us a little bit of a sense of what we're hearing from these interviewees about what they're experiencing in Gaza. So a lot of them are talking about, uh, uh, basically, yeah, they they just expand on these little uh, bits of criticism that you see in these Al Jazeera videos before they take away the microphone from them. And they say that uh, Hamas has basically been stealing aid. Uh, They've... uh, completely destroyed uh, Gaza and whatever lives they had, whatever hopes for the future they had. Now it's all gone. They've caused uh, their loved ones to die. And they are also uh, very concerned that the Hamas would not be unseated because they've been through four rounds of fighting with Israel in the past. Obviously not as uh, you know, uh, 
uh, powerful this one. There wasn't a ground invasion to this extent in the past. But every time after each round of fighting, Hamas was back in power. So a lot of people have no confidence, no matter what the international community says, what the Arab world promises, the U.S. promises. A lot of people just think that Hamas is going to come back uh, because they saw during the ceasefire that uh, uh, Hamas terrorists were coming back from tunnels. And uh, one woman said that the, they're afraid there's going to be a new October 7th on the civilian population, that you're just going to turn their uh, weapons on uh, on civilians, basically, and just, uh, you know... Uh, do mass killings against anyone who, was, who helped with the... On civilians in Gaza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what people are afraid of. So um, the founder of the, the Center for Peace Communications, Joseph Proud, had, had an idea. It's not his own original idea. It's something that has been uh, uh, floated uh, around the international community to start setting up islands, protected space, basically, where uh, reconstruction can begin and people can start to return to their homes and uh, a return to civilian lives with a different administration, um, basically to ensure that Hamas cannot access those areas. And they can set up an example. They can really just uh, give a visual examples to Gazans who have lost all hope for the future that, you know, th- this is possible. Like you have these like, little enclaves, basically, where life can return to normal. Because this is what the people need. They need to see in, in Gaza. Gaza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In areas like in the north where it's mostly been cleaned of, of uh, Hamas and there's an Israeli military presence. It could set up a coalition of Israeli forces, international forces on really like small, limited areas, but just, just to give people a visual example that there can be life without Hamas. And yeah, they can return to normal eventually. And do these interviewees, are they, do they react to this? Do they feel that it's possible at all if they have reacted to it? So again, this is, this is a personal uh, suggestion that came from... Um, uh, from Joseph Browder based on his conversation, on his knowledge of Gaza. He's been in contact with people there for years. Uh, just just to give him a way out of this despair that they have. Um, and as I've listened to all of the interviews that they've published so far, uh, it wasn't discussed. I think it was something they discussed on the side with them. Okay, thanks. I hope we uh, get to keep on hearing those interviews. And Luca, just finally... Um, an Iranian artist who lives in the U.S. was in Israel to unveil a mural that he did, that he created, and uh, that was now is now on exhibit in Israel, in Jerusalem. Tell us about him. So his name is Humal Khalili. He left Iran when he was um, three. He's been living in the Bay Area ever since, but is still... Um very much in contact with Israeli roots. And uh, you remember a couple of years ago, there were uh, mass protests in Iran following the killing of Mahsa Amini uh, because she was not wearing the hijab correctly. And at that point, he, he was very upset about what he was hearing coming from his uh, homeland. Um, and uh, he uh, drew a mural on a wall in San Francisco. So uh, two women in uh, in Israel, two um, activists uh, for Iranian women, um uh, saw his mural on Instagram and decided to invite him to Israel. Uh, so he started coming to Israel on a regular basis, and he had a revelation uh, <laughs> that he had to um, make 18 murals um, in Israel on the same theme of Iranian uh, women and uh, liberation from, from oppression from the Iranian regime. Uh, the number 18 was chosen because in Gematria, it's the number for high, for alive in Hebrew. Uh, and now he's halfway through his project and interviewed him a couple of weeks ago as he unveiled his, uh, his ninth uh, mural. So his latest murals are a combination of Iranian women and Israeli uh, women of, of Iranian descent. Um, 
there is one on the Museum of Tolerance at the entrance of the Museum of Tolerance in uh, Jerusalem who, that uh, depicts uh, Mahsa Mini and the same uh, Israeli regime soldier, Shir uh, Haimpur, um, uh, with the slogan, women, uh, women, freedom, life, the, the slogan of the protest in Iran, basically. Um, yeah, it was it was very fascinating. His, uh, I mean, yeah, if you have a look at the at the article. His his murals are actually very impressive, very beautiful. The combination of uh, personalities and places in one place. Okay, thanks for that, Luca. I'm going to close out this day's daily briefing. Thank you, Luca and Sue, for being with me today. It's been good to see you and hear from you. Thank you, Jessica. Pleasure. And thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. We will be back again tomorrow. This episode is produced by the Podwaves. If you have comments about this or any other episode, please feel free to drop us an email, podcast at timesofisrael.com. And feel free to recommend us to friends and other listeners and rate us wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, take care, be well, Shabbat Shalom. Shalom.